Hello, everybody. Time for yet another of your favorite experiences, which is listening and even participating interactively in a call-in event hosted by yours truly. Now, this one doesn't have the same kind of structured forethought that I would ordinarily give to a call-in. And not to say that I give these call-in rooms a whole lot of structured forethought, but at least some, you know, to make it seem like I'm not just completely winging it. The impetus for this one really is that there had been some interesting discussion about just a data point that I happened across today and naturally posted on Twitter. And I sort of wanted to field people's theories or comments on what might account for this phenomenon, at least as evidenced by a YouGov poll that came out this past week. And it should be said, it's just one poll. Um, You know, sometimes these polls have methodological limitations that you should at least be conscious of. But if we're at least going based on the assumption that what's being reported by this poll is accurate, then it is sort of interesting to look at some of the findings. And this was a poll that was published and dealt primarily with foreign policy issues this past week. So I went through the portion dealing with Russia. And the question is phrased as follows, quote, do you consider the countries listed below to be an ally or enemy of the United States? And then Russia is listed um, along with others like China and even uh, Ukraine. But Russia was the one that drew my attention. And if you go through the um, detailed results that YouGov publishes by demographics. The two demographics that are most likely to answer that Russia is an enemy because they're given the choice between ally, friendly, unfriendly, enemy, and not sure, which is kind of a wacky methodological consideration unto itself, but Given the choices that are made available to respondents, the demographics that are most likely to cite enemy as their choice are uh, people who are age 65 and older, among whom 76% say that Russia is an enemy, and also among white women with college degrees among whom 66% say Russia is an enemy. Now, I I wouldn't want to read too much into that because, you know, white men with college degrees uh, have a 60% affirmative rate when asked if Russia is an enemy, or 60% of college graduates who are white men say that Russia is an enemy, and if you take into account margin of error and the methodological limitations, maybe there isn't a whole lot of difference between white men and women with college degrees in terms of how they conceptualize Russia. Um, But again, just sort of taking at tentative face value what these results show, it is sort of interesting that white women with college degrees and all individuals age 65 and over are the ones who are most likely to say that Russia is an enemy. Now, from a more normative 
perspective, like if I were personally asked this question and wanted to give an answer that is most reflective of my views, I think it would be incumbent on me to say not sure or refuse to answer because how could your (laughs) – it's ridiculous to think that your views around something is vague and multidimensional as whether a country is a, quote, enemy or ally – could be reduced to as simple of a polling prompt as that. So I would personally say not sure because I'm I'm not sure about just the basic utility of the question. Um, and also, you got to wonder like on what basis are my, many people even answering the question because some of the options are like I mentioned, uh, friendly and unfriendly. So you have ally friendly, unfriendly, and enemy. Now. When somebody's asked that question and given those options to respond with, they could be simply reflecting what the stated posture of most government officials is. Because it's not like the U.S. and Russia have been having, quote, friendly interactions over the past several months. So it might not even be that an individual answering this question is conveying their own views, like what ought to be the relationship or how ought to – Russia to be viewed. They could simply be sort of reporting what they've absorbed to be the orientation of the U.S. And so that's hard to sort of disentangle in analyzing responses like these. Um, so you know, I could theoretically say, you know, when I'm asked, do you consider the countries listed below to be an ally or enemy of the United States? Well, I mean, the, the United States as a government body, you know, broadly construed, does jet, sure seems to regard Russia as unfriendly or an enemy. So I could easily justify a way of responding unfriendly or enemy if I'm just kind of asked what could come across as like a factual question as to like what factually speaking, is the current attitude of the U.S. government toward Russia. And if I had my own independent view that I wanted to somehow convey, I would have to like make a few extra logical steps, and it's not clear how many people would make those steps in responding to a poll like this, but I mean, these are limitations to polls that are sort of intrinsic to the entire enterprise, I guess. Um, and you can track certain trends in terms of how countries are viewed if you compare, you know, 2022 versus 2012 or something where there clearly has been a huge uptick in people viewing Russia as an enemy or at least stating such in a polling prompt like this. Now, another couple elements of this are also moderately interesting. And this is in keeping with a lot of the findings that have come out since the Ukraine war started, which is that (laughs) one of the main uh, sort of angles of attack that liberals and Democrats and much of the media has used on Republicans is to try to blast them for harboring this contingent within their coalition of Putin sympathizers to Putin, Putin lovers. And it is true that, you know, three weeks or sorry, three months after the war, you did have this vote in Congress where, a marginal but not totally insignificant minority of Republicans voted against the $40 billion aid package. And aid is a misnomer that I am almost regretful that I used 
in a way that could seem unduly earnest. Um, but if you actually look at the polling data, and that's just one kind of data point, if you look at the polling of Republicans throughout the onset of the war, they're pretty much equal with Democrats in identifying Russia either as an enemy or unfriendly or in some negative fashion. So uh, if you look at the party ID breakdown, um, at least in this poll, 56% of Democrats call Russia an enemy and 50 Sorry, 59% of Democrats call Russia an enemy and 56% of Republicans, which is basically an insignificant dis- uh, distinction. And then 54% of independents. So it really does not have much variation by at least party affiliation. The much more stark distinctions are seemingly by age. Um, so the demographic that is least likely to say that Russia is a, quote, enemy are people aged 18 to 29, where it's only 33%. Um, and then, you know, it goes up and up and up until you get to 65, where it's 76%. And now, is that just residual Cold War kind of antipathy that has been revived and enhanced by what's going on these past couple months amongst people who are old enough to have living memory of the Cold War. That probably is a huge component of it. Um, But you would expect there to be a bit more parity amongst the ages, at least if the PR campaign around the Russia... Ukraine conflict has been successful because clearly the means by which the cause of Ukraine has been promoted in the quote West in the U S has been to sort of tailor a certain message aimed at people who don't have that living memory of the cold war to draw upon in order to kind of enliven their sentiments against Russia. And so the strategy that's largely been used is to connect Ukraine with other kinds of social movements that are considered to be important by younger demographics. Um, So, you know, Russia is characterized as this reactionary, domineering power that wants to stamp out um, social progress and quote-unquote democracy and the liberal order and all this. And, you know, you'll even see it connect, you know, Ukraine connected to LGBT causes and, you know, they'll often come across houses and sometimes uh, pictures of which get posted on social media where they have the flags waving of Ukraine right alongside the flags of like LGBT or trans and Black Lives Matter. You know, thus the whole notion of the, quote, current thing, like this idea that you get people just meander from cause to cause without really even <laughs> pausing to consider what the actual ideological through line is between those causes that they purport to hold so very dear. Um, and yet, at least if we're going based on this poll, there, 
doesn't seem to be a huge surge in 18 to 29 year olds anyway calling Russia an enemy at least relative to other age groups um, so you know I guess it's still possible that the more youth oriented PR messaging that's been all the rage these past couple months has been effective at the margins like maybe it would have been 24 percent as opposed to 33 percent calling Russia an enemy if not for that marketing uh, but nonetheless, it is kind of interesting to compare and contrast. Now, they, the, YouGov also did ask respondents about China. And I'm also curious to hear what people might have to say about these results. Um, because overall, respondents are much less likely to say that they regard China as an enemy. So if you look at the, if you tally up the total responses, thirty six percent of all Americans identify China as an enemy, whereas fifty three percent of all Americans regard Russia as an enemy. And you could even you know, what's the distinction between unfriendly and enemy? It's not entirely certain, but. Um, 79% of all Americans either say that Russia is unfriendly or an enemy um, versus on China, it's um, 70%. So actually somewhat close if you tally up those two categories between Russia and China, although the enemy designation is much more common among uh, people referring to Russia. Um, and so which demographic is the most likely to designate China as an enemy? Well, it's the same demographic. It's people age 50 and, uh, 65 and over. Uh, a lesser percentage identify China as an enemy. Only 50% do so with regard to China compared to uh, 76 with regard to Russia. Uh, but still, you know, a fair, fair chunk um, approaching the, you know, just strict majority. But among people aged 18 to 29, only 16% identified China as an enemy. So maybe what we're dealing with, and it would be interesting if people maybe have a more robust knowledge than I do off the top of my head anyway, about historical trend lines about segments of the population identifying an enemy. Um, is it just sort of ingrained with the maturation of persons age-wise that they're more likely – as they grow older, to regard certain countries as enemies? I mean, that sounds plausible to me as I'm articulating it now, but I don't have a, an immediate data point to cite because I'm just sort of wanting to flesh this out with people as to what their ideas are. Uh, there is a little bit of a different partisan differentiation around whether people regard China as an enemy. Um, so, and that differentiation is actually fairly starkly pronounced. So 58% of Republicans call China an enemy and only 23% of Democrats. Whereas with Russia, it's pretty much consistent across the board amongst self-identified partisans. I think it's fair to say that these figures are pretty fluid. So there could easily be some change down the line where, you know, more Democrats could identify China as an enemy than Republicans. 
um, because we saw this happen just in the past couple of years with Russia. Uh, when Trump came into office and when the popular liberal theory that everybody subscribed to on MSNBC and in these corners of resistance social media um, that Trump had been installed into office nefariously by Putin, when that became like the such a dominant factor in American political discourse, you saw a correlatory rise in sentiment viewing Russia as an enemy amongst Democrats, where, where, where they began to outpace Republicans in viewing Russia as an enemy, which had not been the case historically. Because at least, you know, during the Cold War, it was assumed that the most hardline anti-Russia, anti-Soviet demographic was going to be, you know, the more stalwart conservatives. And that had flipped just in the past six years or so. And it really flipped based on something totally arbitrary, which is this narrative that had been concocted around Trump being in hock to Russia and being somehow this sort of uh, Manchurian candidate who was carrying out the will of Putin and overturning democracy in the process. So we could easily imagine some analogous scenario arising in U.S. domestic politics at some point in the future that causes these partisan distinctions to shift again. So it's not, it's not set in stone. It really is, as with most things, it seems, depressingly contingent on just media depictions and this reflexive partisanship. Um, and... You know, as to what accounts for the older people and the white women with college degrees being the most aggressive toward Russia, well, um, if you forget Russia as such, as like the key variable in determining how people formulate their opinions on this that they would share with the with the pollster, and just substitute partisanship. Then you know white women with college degrees are going to be the, amongst the most virulently opposed to Trump today, and are going to probably be amongst the most likely to formulate their political self conception around their continued opposition to Trump because they keep getting told that Trump is this persistent threat. He's gearing up for another run for office, uh, which if he succeeds in will result in the destruction of democracy and the imposition of some kind of tyranny. You know, whether they're, they're going to realize that the same exact thing was said in 2016, it's not clear. Um, maybe they do think that post-2016, the United States was an actual fascist dictatorship. A lot of them definitely do believe that. But I, I guess what I'm trying to say is a lot of people who have these this cluster of beliefs probably are going to be most heavily concentrated in that demographic of white women with college degrees. And so therefore, if they're asked a question about Russia and they still regard Russia as, at least in part, a proxy for Trump, then they're going to identify Russia as an enemy because in doing so, they're 
identifying Trump as their political enemy. Now, I'm not saying that's a perfect theory. I think that might account for some of this. Um, and it's also potentially contradicted by other findings in this polling um, because among black voters, <clears throat> so a demographic that is not going to be generally friendly to Trump, um, only 18% say that uh, – oh, no, sorry. Looking at the wrong finding. Among uh, black voters – uh, 44% sorry, say that Russia is an enemy, which is you know a fairly significant number, but much less, significantly less than the white women with college graduates, among whom 66% say that uh, Russia is an enemy. And uh, actually less than self-identified conservatives. Among self-identified conservatives, 55% say Russia is an enemy. And you, know, you can't make a perfect comparison between that and black voters because some of them might identify as conservatives as well. Some, actually, at least some percentage surely do. But this is the way they kind of break down the results. So 44% of black voters say that Russia is an enemy and 55% of conservatives. Um, now, if only for, uh, 44% of – so if a greater percentage of conservatives than black voters say that Russia is an enemy – that indicates that it can't all break down on these sort of latent partisan political lines that were forged around attitudes toward Trump. Um, So I wouldn't propose that as some kind of all-encompassing theory. Uh, I just think, at least amongst white women with college graduates, you know, it's not like this is a preternaturally hawkish demographic, like it's not a, a demographic that throughout history one would have thought would be the most ardently hawkish. And I do think to identify Russia as a, quote, enemy is the most hawkish response amongst these because it suggests either that you're at war, you would desire to be at war with Russia. If Russia is an enemy, then that would suggest certain more bellicose policy responses and the same would go with China. Um, so – if white women are leading the pack on this, white women with college degrees, that is, um, it's got to be explainable by something other than their just natural tendency to be pro-war or belligerent or hawkish, right? It's got to be something beyond that. And I would would postulate that a, a fair amount of that has to do with this kind of Trump-based realignment that they, more than other demographics, really underwent full steam in these past uh, six or so years. And sort of curious what other people think of that. Okay, let's go to uh, No War. Hello. Good evening, Michael. Hey. Um, very interesting uh, numbers. I'd be really keen. I don't know if YouGov's, I think it was a YouGov poll you were citing, right? Yeah, um, YouGov. I'd be keen on what the numbers were like pre-Trump. And if they if they were doing this polling, then I I personally would surmise that or, or guess that that uh, that the numbers on China haven't been strongly impacted since then, and were probably fairly steady, just because of the rhetoric around communism and and whatnot that is persistent in America. But I would guess that the the numbers on Russia are drastically different. 
and I'd be keen yeah, on un- what... Unfortunately, unfortunately, YouGov only started asking this question in, uh, in 2017. Okay. So, uh, I mean, you could maybe... I could maybe find Gallup polling or something, but it's better to... <laughs> it's generally better to compare Stay. the same pollster over time. Yeah. Yeah, um, but I, I, you know, I think they really only started asking this... You know, and YouGov is a relatively new outfit, we should say. So maybe I think they might have only started their American – because it's a British pollster. I think they may have only started their American outfit around that time. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm, uh, unfortunately you can't really compare. I know that YouGov definitely showed uh, that greater percentages of Democrats throughout Trump's term – identified Russia as an enemy than Republicans, and that evened out now over the past couple months with the Ukraine war, so there's not much of a distinction anymore between Republicans and Democrats in identifying Russia as an enemy. The rhetoric was so strong for, for the last five or six years on on Russia, especially out of MSNBC, CNN, and most of the mainstream media, a little less so on Fox. So I understand, I guess... I see the numbers. And I guess to my eyes, the difference in like the age, like the younger cohort, um, not seeing Russia as the problem, I think, I don't know, maybe it's a little hopeful on my part, but I think they're recognizing that the real issues are inside of this country, that it's the oligarchy in America that's the problem that's holding things back and causing issues and that it's not an outside force or outside agitators. So I don't know. That, that stuff's really interesting. I did kind of want to ask you what you thought about uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene making a, a strong statement on Twitter a couple days ago, two, three days ago, about Assange and, and that case. And, uh, and then people attacking um, anyone who, who kind of is like, wait, why is Marjorie Taylor Greene on my side on the Assange issue, which I'm on the side that Marjorie Taylor Greene spoke to, and Brianna Joy Gray got attacked about it, um, Katie Halper was a little in there, and like, why we saw this with Ukraine funding a month or two ago, we see it now with Assange. Why are there conservatives? They're outflanking squad members, Bernie, and the like on the issue of, of Assange. And and well, if yeah. I could yeah. if I could throw one other question in there with you, and then I'll I'll uh, I'll leave it at that. What what do you think is going to happen if they extradite Assange to the United States? Does the U.S. really want to do that trial? Do they want to disclose the things that they have to disclose in a trial to convict Assange of what they're trying to convict him of? And how would that trial go? I know that's kind of a lot, so respond to whatever. Well, yeah, I think, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene is best understood not so much as a conservative, although, yeah, she would identify as in some sense a conservative or an America first promoter or what have you. I would more identify her as like a gadfly. Um, I'm not even saying that from a negative standpoint necessarily. There are 
there ought to be at least a healthy sampling of gadflies in Congress who defy expectations around their caucus, who focus on issues that are outside the mainstream, and who just kind of march to the beat of their own drum, to use a cliche. Um, And there have been some members of Congress who've done that to much good effect over the years, you know, Ron Paul, Tulsi Gabbard, yeah, Mike Gravel, uh, Kucinich. Um, and th- occasionally people on the right do it as well. I mean, Thomas Massey, I would probably could put in that category. Um, just in that, you know, he's the only, <laughs> he's, he's sort of playing the Ron Paul, Paul now, uh, role now where there will be legislation passed literally almost unanimously. I was, lo- okay, I was looking up, there was a uh, piece of legislation passed after the Hong Kong protest in 2019 where basically the U.S. just declared it was really just symbolic support for the people of um, Hong Kong against China, and I think off, the bill might have authorized some sort of stud, uh, State Department study into the human rights situation in Hong Kong, and uh, Thomas Massey was the one vote <laughs> against that. Um, and, you know, he had, a, he had reasonable rationale for it, I would say. Uh, but the point is it makes him, makes him sort of a gadfly. And I think in the case of Marjorie Taylor Greene, she already has a, so much baggage. And I again, I don't even say baggage necessarily as a negative sort of uh, indictment of her, although there's elements of her baggage that I do think are a little bit genuinely crazy. Um, but she already is kind of tarnished by, for example, when she first entered Congress, she had to stand up and give a speech apologizing for endorsing like 9-11 truth back in the day on Facebook. Um, And so in light of that, you know, she's not somebody who necessarily is going to be um, cultivated or um, molded by the, the Republican caucus to rise through the ranks of seniority and take on like a leadership role or run a committee or something, right? She's somebody who's already sort of been relegated to the fringes. And I think that is sort of a double-edged sword because if you do aspire to rise through the ranks in a career sense in Congress, then you can't do what she's doing. But if you don't have that aspiration and you just want to you know, push issues that are outside the mainstream, then she's in a perfect position to do so because she's generated a giant media profile. She has a big social media following and she's a lightning rod. Um, and so she, this, that position frees her up to make statements like the one she made about Assange. And on the merits, what she said is totally correct. I mean, if we really really care about the First Amendment, then we should care about Julian Assange. Freedom of the press is the protection of the ability to expose the truth and publish it. This should always be protected, and this freedom should always be handled with the most respect. Uh, if she continues in this tweet thread, if they're upset about the Khashoggi killing, then they should be upset over Julian Assange. Is the American press afraid to speak out against the U.S. extradition of Julian Assange? Is it just be, is it because it's not another government's prosecution or an attack on a journalist yet but yet our own the ruling regime in america persecutes their enemies in order to strike fear in anyone who dares expose the corruption and stand up against it i mean not maybe the maybe it's the kind of flowery language that i personally wouldn't use but the spirit of it is 
you know, normatively correct in my view. Um, Definitely. And I, I do think a lot of people on the right, like, you know, did genuinely undergo a transformation in their attitudes toward issues like government transparency. Um, I think even Sarah Palin, you know, who at one point called, you know, when the WikiLeaks uh, first published the Iraq war logs and the Afghanistan logs, Sarah Palin called for the assassination of Assange, um, as did Joe Biden, by the way. Um, and Hillary. Yeah, well, yeah. And, um, Hillary wanted and Sarah to Palin, him, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I, I'm actually not sure if Biden called for the assassination. No, I know he called Assange a high-tech terrorist. Um, but Palin did call for the assassination of Assange. And very recently she's repented of that um, because – you know, the uh, part of that probably has to do with knee-jerk partisanship because Assange came to – it's the same reason why Democrats then, uh, came to loathe Assange because they viewed him as a pawn of the right uh, slash of Russia. And that um, hardened their attitudes against Assange, whereas in the past they might have supported him for you know exposing what the Bush administration did in Iraq or whatever. Uh, and likewise on uh, among Republicans um, whom uh, – responded to Assange being associated with like the anti-Hillary Clinton movement and changed their views on that basis in part, but also maybe in part on the basis of a genuine reevaluation of what they had thought. I mean, Palin claims to have had a genuine epiphany. Um, and actually, <laughs> funnily enough, she actually, is, she is relevant now because she's the front, she, she just, uh, she's running for the open house seat in Alaska, the incumbent, Don, Don Young. Young, died uh, after uh, 49 years in office <laughs> this past year. Uh, and Sarah Palin, is, uh, she advanced into the second round of the uh, runoff election, is probably going to win. And is probably, there, therefore, going to be uh, a congresswoman from Alaska for as long as she wants. I miss um, Sarah which is, Palin in some ways, just mostly for the chuckles. But. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so anyway, that's my what's one of my preliminary thoughts on Marjorie Taylor Greene. What, um, did that, you, have, you had a third that thing. One question, yeah, that question that I was curious about is how do you think the U.S. has Assange in the position they want that's perfect for them right now, being in this incarcerated limbo in another country? Like to my eyes, if they bring him here, right? And they have to execute upon a trial. He's not going to plea. He's not going to take a plea bargain or any anything like that. It's going to trial if he gets here. And does the U.S. want that? Does the U.S. government want that? I mean, do they want to go through a trial where they have to expose the the the, the like some of the truths that they're scared of that Assange exposed? And and do they want that? And then, you know, do they allow a trial, if it were to go to a trial, to be public? I mean, they'd probably limit cameras in the courtroom, but do they completely make it like a, 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 a you know, top secret trial and not allow any public eyes on it? Or what? How do you see that going if it gets to that point, which it seems to be heading in that direction. 
Well, um, it would be a federal trial. And so unless a judge were to go off the reservation and somehow allow for cameras in the courtroom, it would be presumptively not televised. Um, but I believe he was indicted just in maybe like the Eastern District of Virginia or something. So it's not necessarily the case, as far as I understand it, that it would be some kind of extra national security oriented trial that would have certain you know, uh, restrictions on media access or publicity or whatever. It's not like a FISA court trial or something, right? It would be, you could, you could go to the trial, you know, unless there's a new pandemic and the courts are shut down to public access. Um, but I think you actually do raise a good point. Like, is this more or less the ideal scenario for like, you know, the, the prosecutors that have, that brought forth this indictment and have sought extradition of Assange? Would they rather just have him languishing in a prison in a different country for as long as possible? Maybe he withers away and then they don't have to deal with what would undoubtedly be a very high-profile trial and he would have definitely an uh, extensive legal team that would, I'm sure, try to bring as much as humanly possible to light um, over the course of, you know, discovery and whatever else. So, yeah, I mean, that's a, it's a good point. Uh, I think, um, I doubt the people, <laughs> I, I don't know how much conscious thought really goes into calculating strategically what is going to be most beneficial for the government in the case of a prospective trial like this. I think it's just sort of a long-term process that they're just kind of going to go along with the, with the ride for. Um, but yeah, maybe maybe they would have preferred if <laughs> extradition were not granted, although you know, that would be a pretty shocking rebuke of the Biden administration on the part of the British government, which basically is just the lackey for the U.S. government on most things, including extradition requests. All right. Uh, thank, thank you. you. Thank, thank you, you, Michael. Yep. Let's go to uh, let's go to Eric, which is not his real name, I, as I have been apprised oh, over it? the years. <laughs> well, Eric, Michael, it's all good. You know, the world could always use another Michael. Yeah, I don't know about you, but when I was growing up in school, there would always be like 12 Michaels. Michael F., um, Michael and... S., <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mike. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So uh, uh, most of the time, I would just be called by my last name uh, just because it, it was impractical to call me Mike or Michael. But Tracy's a um, name. Yeah, yeah, that is true. That's been a hindrance. But my last name is an insane... There are some males named... There are some males named... It's true. I, sh- I apologize. It's like Ashley or Vivian. It's one of those uh, names that's for both men and women. <laughs> yeah. Tracy McGrady. Trace uh, Adkins. Hey, Trace. That's pretty good. Or Tracer. Yeah. But you were mentioning earlier that... But any, 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 anyway, let's not, let's not go for like 45 minutes on a disquisition about 
my name and how it affected my childhood. Okay, if you don't want to, we don't have to. But uh, <laughs> I was just saying, you said you, you were mentioning how Margie came with things like a gadfly. And you know, gadflies have their purpose. I think of you as a gadfly. I think that's a great thing. It's a useful thing. It's it's like, it's a good version of a troll. Curmudgeon? Curmudgeon? I don't, but you're, you're, but you're not curmudgeonly. You're still open and friendly, right? So... Uh, <laughs> You put up a tough front, but we—that's why we love you for it. <laughs> I don't mind. I've been, I've been called curmudgeonly before, and I don't mind it because even if I, even if people mistakenly assume I have this gruff exterior, the term curmudgeon connotes something just about unwillingness to conform or capitulate that I appreciate. Yeah, maybe it's like uh, I sometimes wonder if people think this about me, like. I'm thinking deeply about something, and then they think I'm like reacting to them or something. Uh, <laughs> but I'm just thinking, you know. But I have a very stern look on my face. But yeah. as, anyways, um, um, I did want to um, think about uh, with your topic here, the white ladies as the new warhawks. You know, <laughs> one uh, one thing that came at to least mind. at least you at least I have one guy who appreciates my slightly cheeky call in room titles. Well, you know, I love to stay on topic, <laughs> but anyways, um, you know, I really think about um, the idea that, you know, I guess, I mean, you, who is the Uber white lady, you know, of the modern era is Hillary Clinton, right? I mean, in terms of um, how her white ladies as a group were supposedly conjured up. Did you see um, that Hillary Clinton did one of those um, out to lunch interviews or like lunchtime? Yeah. There's like a lunchtime interview series that the Financial Times does. And uh, she accused Putin of behaving in a sexist manner toward her when she was Secretary of State, which included Putin manspreading in order to assert his dominance in her presence. That's funny. That's a little funny because remember when Trump, uh, also, he, he really did do that man stuff on, on Hillary. I, I don't think Putin would do that but trump did do that because when he hovered behind her and i always i always wondered like maybe she should have turned around and just been like what are you doing and then gone back to what she was saying it was a little odd to me when i when i need it need him in the balls <laughs> <laughs> yeah um but um it was it was a uh, um I didn't see that, but it may make sense because, listen, the way that Hillary Clinton is, um, I hate to sound too alarmist, but it's to, it's a totalitarian ideology, you know, the definition of which is this idea. Any set person who has this a set of ideas who thinks explains everything. So in her case, it's sexism or a specific, you know, that explains everything. It's not, you know, anything particular to her. And so often you got you get with Hillary and you get with um, these the white women war hawks, you know, who I, you know, I'm thinking not necessarily of the voters, but, you know, I'm thinking of people, you know, the Samantha Powers and the Anne-Marie Slaughters, you know, the, the I mean, you know, and, I mean, I, I always feel like I have to apologize for being very obvious about these things, but it's like, come on, power and slaughter. <laughs> like, I don't need to make a joke. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but Amory Slaughter in particular was the most unfortunately named pro-war advocate of the Obama era. You can't spell <laughs> slaughter without laughter. Yeah. So, um, yeah, but the, 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 I guess the thing is with Amory Slaughter and Samantha Power, they were hawkish ten years ago, right? I mean, so they were hawkish relative to the, to the rest of the population ten years ago. Anne-Marie Slaughter, I remember, had her name constantly pilloried 
back when she was agitating for the Libya intervention in 2011 and got caught in those in the emails that were published by WikiLeaks strategizing about how to best um, assign credit to Hillary Clinton for having been like the prime mover within the Obama administration to launch the Libya intervention. Um, so those happened to be two. Those happened to Yeah, yeah. I mean, so those happen, but those happened to be two conspicuously named white women who were in like the DC professional class. But I don't know how how much that tells us about these society-wide shifts in the propensity of college-educated white women to support a more hawkish response than other demographic well, I, I groups. And I, I, th- I think, I think, I think, I think the, va- the variable there probably, you know, if what I postulated as to the variable that it might explain this shift about these sort of residual Trump era, um, kind of recalibrations in political attitudes. I think you could also connect that to this, you know, sort of still lingering desire for vengeance on behalf of Hillary for having lost to Trump. I think that's exactly right. And I think it's quite open in many cases. Um, you know, you get this sense that, you know, a lot of what was, what was used to defend Hillary was a, a way of saying, oh, when men do this, you don't complain. But then when women do it, you do. And then, but every example was, you could find examples of, no, 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 we do call men who, you know, for example, male politicians who accept a lot of money, we do call them whores, corporate whores. Like, or, you know, when men start wars, everyone loves it. But when women start wars, all of a sudden everyone's anti-war. It's like, no, I mean, we need to be anti-war. Yeah, I mean, the male male senators who voted for the Iraq war all got a free pass. (laughs) I mean, eventually Biden kind of did in the last one. But yeah, it was, I mean, it was, it wasn't a gendered thing, of course. Um, Except for when, you know, she explicitly wants to play on gender and wants to say that, you know, if if women are in the room, there will be more peace, you know, uh, because, you know, women are, you know, that's part of what she tried to sell is, this the general idea i guess i mean i'm trying to make a connection to like um the old tradition of republican motherhood or whatever you know the american tradition because at the end of the day america's a pretty pro-war country so why would american women be pro-war well you know they would funnel it through their own you know if you're talking about college educated their own idea of expertise and that you know um uh, uh we can do things properly and we're not going to just be the bystander um but uh ultimately i think a big a big thing that would take a big chunk out of that to be honest is if women were required to you know uh draft to, to sign up for the draft i mean there's all kinds of jokes about it like women being like oh actually i would you know stay and be a housewife if there was the draft but so um all the, it, it's interesting to see you know of course the, at the end of the day for american war hawkery a big part of our ability to be so hawkish is that the war doesn't affect us but you know if people paid attention they could see that it does but you know when it comes to women when these women have to start sending their sons in there and remember when hillary said right uh War is the hardest on women because women lose their sons and their husbands. And it's like uh, (laughs) – Actually, you know, uh, adding women to the draft is sort of a perennially debated um, issue in the composition of the yearly defense spending bill. Um, And last year it was entertained for a time. Um, I think it was in the initial draft for like the Defense Authorization Act and then got uh, dropped when the uh, House and the Senate were in conference. And I just actually Googled it 
And uh, June 15th, Rubio, Marco Rubio, along with Josh Hawley, sent a letter um, up to Jack Reed, the Democrat from Rhode Island, opposing new language um, that would include women in the draft. And so again, it's coming up again. And, you know, that's where the rubber starts to hit the road for, I mean, uh, a lot of, a lot of, I mean, gender theory and, um, you know, practical purposes. Uh, and you also see it at the Ukraine situation. If you've seen these stories about different types of transgender Ukrainians who um, will, you know, either revert to their birth sex as a woman to um, flee. And, you know, I, no, I wouldn't criticize anybody for doing that. Right. But um but then others who are like the transgender uh, male um, trans women who are forced to take up service because other you know otherwise you're a deserter. So um, you know I, I would hope that it's not going to come down to that for America. Yeah. yeah, I guess I shouldn't chuckle, but there were reports when the war first started in Ukraine that trans uh, women were being blocked from leaving the country with the other women refugees because the Ukrainian government didn't recognize their declared gender and, you know, sought to force them to enlist or, you know, be, be actually be conscripted just like every other fighting age male in Ukraine. And, um, you know, if... <laughs> and at if, the same if, time, uh, the Ukrainian if, if, army if, is... Uh, they, do, they do show off the women who are fighting in the army, for example, on the Western, you know, on Twitter and stuff. They do say, we've got women and then... You know, a lot of these women, sometimes they have these patches on their, they look like windmills or, you know, but anyway. Well, when the war first started, I mean, this is sort of, and this is sort of part of how the war was initially marketed toward Western liberal oriented audiences. And it had to be marketed in a certain way because Western liberal oriented audiences are generally not the audiences that are going to just be naturally inclined to be boisterously pro-war, at least historically hadn't been. So they needed to be compelled to support this new war effort using different tactics. And one of the tactics was to hype this supposed gender parity of the Ukrainian military. So there was this huge effort to showcase, you know, these young, attractive Ukrainian women posing in battle fatigues and uh, posting photos on Instagram and everything. And I don't have, it's hard to know what the uh, full breakdown is of the Ukrainian casualties, but I don't see a whole lot of evidence that there have been a huge amount of Ukrainian women who've sustained battle casualties. Every once in a while, I, I did see something floating across Telegram once uh, Mariupol fell of a woman uh, sniper uh, in the Ukrainian military who was uh, captured or was uh, being confronted by by Russian troops, and you know who knows about the providence of that one clip. But other than that one clip, I haven't seen anything indicating that there really is this supposed uh, parity uh, in the uh, gendered commitments to the personnel that is waging the war in Ukraine. It seemed like it was largely this marketing tactic to make it to make it seem like Western audiences, by quote, standing with Ukraine or standing with this progressive force to for gender uh, equity in Eastern Europe. Yeah, I agree. I mean, uh, uh, and and the other and the greater question is, if there was parity, would that be an improvement or would that be a serious, you know, 
uh, not improvement. <laughs> and um, yeah, and, and when I was, I mean, I'm not, I'm not the. This is not a novel thing for me to report. But when I was in Poland in um, in March, and I would go to these big refugee processing centers, and I don't even like to use the word refugee; they're more like just displaced people, um, because refugee seems like it seems like it uh, brands them for life as a certain thing that in choose and most of them you know were in relatively good spirits as far as i could tell i'm not and i'm not diminishing their plate a lot of them had suffered um but you know it was it was like 95 percent women um and children and then just a, a handful of very elderly men who who had uh, who were who had been permitted to leave the country um so i don't know how that matches up with how it was being presented in the first stage of the war when the PR you know, forces of consensus were in overdrive to kind of make it seem like this was – Ukraine was this progressive cause that Western liberals could relate to. Well, I hope we can get a woman to talk now, so let me log out of here, but um, thanks for uh, – <laughs> Okay. <laughs> thanks for everything. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, hello, Shelly. And Shelly, just for the record – you may not believe me, but when I pledge to watch... I don't. Those... You're a man. I'm just kidding. <laughs> when I pledge to watch the thing that you wanted me to watch, I genuinely did pledge to do so and will do so, but I, the pledge in my mind was oriented around the next episode with Richard, which is not going to be until Thursday. Yes, yes. So I haven't watched it yet, but I will watch it prior to Thursday. I am not here to hassle you about that. I wasn't even going to mention it, but I'm glad that I'm on your mind. Thank you. I know, but I, but I feel like I'm, you're... you're Keeping my feet, holding my feet to the fire, which I appreciate. Yeah, I'm dogged. <laughs> um, so I was just going to say, speaking of your title, no, he's not the only one that appreciates your titles. It's just most of the time. <laughs> oh, I know you. you got other people, so I'm just trying to like, I don't want to slow you down too much. But you did kind of really miss an opportunity with this one because it could have been White Ladies, the New War Harpies. Uh, yeah, that might have been too, too problematic even for me. Oh, well, whatever. I'm a white lady. Um, I think really, I think, and I don't know if you have this. <laughs> just a quick, just a quick aside, but there was a Michelle Goldberg column in the New York Times a couple of days ago. Um, I, I tweeted, I'm not, I don't know if you happen to see it, but one of the, the reason why I tweeted it is because she posted, she included amazing poll findings showing that something like 45%, if memory serves, of Democrat leaning men under 50 uh, said that feminism was not a force for good. Um, And this poll was commissioned by the Southern Poverty Law Center as part of like their never ending crusade to identify and condemn right wing reactionary sentiments. Uh, And they came up with this result, which showed that almost half of uh, democratic leaning men under 50 have a negative view on on feminism, and anyway, the um, the title was the uh, the title for this column was "The Future Is Not Female," and I sent it to a uh, a white <laughs> woman who uh, is an acquaintance of mine. <laughs> Her response was just "Thank God." <laughs> I was just about to say the same thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> also, oh my god, that's funny. Um, and also, I might get into like this is not the topic that I wanted to talk about, but I think there is an argument there about the trends in feminism, and I would definitely say that third wave feminism has been relatively toxic to any type of feminist movement. That's that's an aside. 
Um, I think if, if, like, if there's any way, cause you're probably like faster, smarter, know exactly where to go to like get this information kind of quickly. I think it would be interesting to take the same numbers that you were talking about earlier and then compare that to the people that watch mainstream media. Most of your younger people, they don't really watch mainstream media all that much. So that might account for some of the reason why they aren't as affected by sort of, you know, the warmongering and the manufacturing of consent and all that stuff. And then the other thing that I think you would have to do to explain white women is that you just literally find Rachel Maddow's demographics and you smash them on top and they'll match perfectly. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the, the far and away, the demographic that is most likely to watch cable news, I mean, they're most likely to loaf in front of their TV for hours a day and watch Don Lemon sermonize. Um, that's people 65 and older. So, you know, those are the people, and you know, the, you get the same narrative on Russia, Ukraine, basically on any corporate TV station, with maybe some slight differences around the margins on Fox. Um, but sans Fox, uh, it's the same message virtually anywhere, and the vast majority—I don't know if it's the majority—but a huge percentage of the people who are actually watching that stuff on a regular basis are going to be in that 65 and older demographic. So yeah, maybe it's just a function of the media consumption habits and there's not much more to it than that. Yeah. And then as far as white women, I, I think one of their things, like, especially as far as like Donald Trump and, you know, we had the whole grab him by the pussy thing and the pussy hats and, you know, all of that nonsense. And you're talking about, and here I am being such a bitch. Um, you're talking about a group of like white women with college degrees that probably don't even let their husbands grab their pussy. So, I mean, they seem they might seem to be incredibly. We're, <laughs> we're 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 we're, go, we're going down a strange road right now, Shelley. But well, but I'm but continue. Making, I'm just making the point that a lot of the white women I know, and I and I do have a college degree, but I I work in healthcare, so I like clean people's shit. So it's it's a little bit different. You know, I don't work in sort of like the office type space or anything like that, where I feel like they just get kind of snooty. And I think it's just the snootiness is really what I was pointing out. Just trying to be funny. But then you're like, oh my God, the, the PC-ness. Yeah, well, <laughs> so our preliminary theories, at least based on Shelley's take, uh, <laughs> consist of women no longer allowing their husbands to grab them by the pussy and being snooty. I'm not sure how conducive to quantifiable analysis those theories yeah, are. Yeah, I know, I know. But <laughs> I, I would be curious if you if you would be able to, like, if you would know how to figure out or, like, find Rachel Maddow's demographics and see if you could make any comparison. Because I do think that, you know, if you're thinking about people that watch MSNBC, I do think that they tend to be more white with a college degree. And then, plus, it's probably more women. And then put that on with Rachel Maddow and kind of her like absolute, you know, like hour of hysteria every single night that they were subjected to. And I think it makes sense. Yeah. Maddow's not even on every night anymore. Is she? I mean, she somehow no. negotiated a deal with her agent, Ari Emanuel from, you know, entourage, yeah, um, yeah, who, different. where she only has like one, she's only on air once a week now or something, or I don't even know exactly, but she's pursuing other projects. Right, but I mean, if you're talking about really like fanning the flames for years and years and years, then yeah, you no, have to have of course. Every night now. Yeah, I mean, it's the damage has been done already. Now she can just pop up and just like literally shriek like in a flat <laughs> tone for an hour, and people are like, "Oh my god, Rachel Maddow is the best." 
Occasionally, like I'll, I'll see people like do on on Twitter who I, I'm assuming fall into this demographic, doing like countdowns of when Rachel's going to be back on TV again because they are so desperate to hear her wisdom once more, and they feel like they're being deprived and they're sort of lost in confusion for how to interpret events in the world without her nightly her nightly uh, you know ponderous lectures. Right. Well, I think it's because in their own heads, they're screaming at that same flat tone all the time. And then whenever she comes on the TV screen, they just harmonize together and they finally feel seen. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. Thanks, Shelly. Uh, let's uh, go thanks. to Amanda, who appears to be a white woman, which is helpful for our purposes tonight. Amanda, you're up. You have to unmute if you're not familiar by pressing the little microphone button in the top in the bottom right hand corner. All right, Amanda going once, Amanda going twice. All right, sadly, Amanda is being silenced. Um, feel free to join back on the caller queue if you're back. Okay, uh, Andrew, you're up. Hello, Michael. Hey. Um, I have a couple of things. First of all, just a quick note. I think Socrates referred to himself as a gadfly, so that's not such a bad thing. I Did think, he? Uh, it definitely has a use in society. I didn't sure know that term stemmed all the way back to ancient Greece. Well, I don't know if it translates, but uh, <laughs> I'm pretty sure something about it in this trial. Uh, one yeah. of those classes I halfway paid attention to in college. <laughs> you know, I just read um, I.F. Stone. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he was this sort of oh, yeah. pioneer, yeah, pioneering journalist in the uh, mid 20th century. After he stopped his marquee newsletter for health reasons in the 70s, he devoted himself full time for a, several years to study of ancient Greece and learned Greek and wrote a book on um, the trial of Socrates and basically came up with, <laughs> I guess you could call it a contrarian opinion and of where uh, essentially Socrates had it coming. That was his conclusion in that the, he, he viewed Socrates as somehow this reactionary figure who had been put to trial just, put on trial justly because he was this remnant of a, um, of a coup force in Greece that uh, had taken over um, and had overthrown the government and, uh, Socrates had been in exile. I mean, I'm probably butchering this explanation because I'm not that familiar with it. But. I wasn't familiar with this at all. So this is all new. Yeah, look it up. Look it up. So- Socrates. Uh, look up Socrates. I have stone. If you're curious, <laughs> I will. Um, the second thing, tangentially, uh, well, not related at all, but uh, my anecdotal reporting about white women with college degrees. Uh, you know, I feel like. Uh, I, I like white women with college degrees. Some of them are my. Favorite, you know, <laughs> is but, this is this going to be a, is this going to be about your dating problems? <laughs> uh, no, not necessarily. Good. Good, but uh, good, good. one of them, I was just on a, a talking to them, and Ukraine popped up, and she just remarked, "You know, she's not a stupid person." She said, uh, "I wish we could just kill Putin. Why don't they just kill him?" And uh, you know, it, it, it just kind of. Amused. And was this in your in your? In your, was this IRL somewhere? Yeah, we were just walking around. Okay. Anyway, I don't know how serious she was about it, but uh, yeah. I think the sentiment was there. It wasn't so much of a, 
you know, declarative statement about really how it should be. But the sentiment was definitely there. Well, when I was in Poland, I was I, I met this. Um, I've, I think I've I mentioned this on Colin before, you know, a couple months ago when I was there. But when I was in Poland, I met this uh, couple that were involved in that were politically involved and were basically, you know, Nancy Pelosi liberals in a Polish context and. Maybe an hour into the discussion, the uh, woman who said that her wish was for the U.S. to send SEAL Team Six into Moscow and assassinate Putin. So this is somebody who was like a, this is somebody say. this is somebody who was like a liberal for. <laughs> it honestly purposes. does sound like a Trump yeah. plan yeah. to just. We'll anyway, the last thing I wanted to bring up uh, about Ukraine, the uh, I sent you a message about this guy. I'm going to test the bounds of this app because I'm going to go to the messages so let me know if you lose me but i want to read this article for you okay i, uh, I missed that <clears throat> can you still hear me right now or yeah I can am i gone you. no you're okay. here all right so the recorder uh steven d zabielski this is uh from june 1st of this year uh mr C- steven uh zabielski of hernando florida formerly of cranesville new york died on sunday may 15th 2022 while fighting the war in village of Dorzniak, Ukraine. Anyway. Wait, 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 wait. Hold, hold on. <laughs> Spell that. Spell Stephen Zabielski. Uh, Stephen with a PH and then D uh, Zab, Z A B I E L S K I. The recorder is reporting this. As far as I can tell, this is legitimate. If you want to look up on Twitter, Sam Harper, I believe, is the name of the guy that initially reported this out of Ukraine and confirmed it through the recorder. Sam now. Harper? Sam Harper, I believe that's his name. Or, yeah. You mean Seth Harp? Seth Harp, that might be it. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, that's that. That would be it. Um, okay, so, interesting. As far as I can tell, this I'm is sort of surprised right? that I have. See, I, I'm pretty plugged into this news, and I, I, uh, I apparently missed that one. Yeah, I just pulled it up. Steven Zabielski, June first, two thousand twenty-two. I can't find much about him, other than. So yeah, it says while fighting the war in the village of Doronziank, Ukraine. Yes, and if you look, it said he's a career carpenter of 30 years, apparently. So somehow this guy, <laughs> I mean, looking at his last name, maybe he has some kind of family tie. I don't know. But somehow a career carpenter spookily ends up in Ukraine and dies. And the interesting thing I was going to ask you about is uh, two different things. One... The one of the captured Americans was apparently, according to Gonzalo Lira's, and he's fit like 50, 57 years old or something. So he would, yeah, he's, he's not, not just some guy. yeah, yeah. Sorry, um, go ahead. No, it's, uh, Gonzalo Lira reported that uh, one of the Americans captured, the older one, is actually a chemical weapon, a chemical weapons specialist, and not a combat. Uh, he hadn't been in combat before, and this guy. Didn't get reported on at all. So Meaning one of the one of the two that's currently in captivity right now. Yeah, Druki or Druki. Yeah, yeah. He was apparently not in combat before, but uh, had uh, chemical weapons training or some kind of chemical specialty. But it, the interesting thing to me is why is this guy that died, and served two tours in Iraq? Right. So there's experience there and specialty, and this guy is like spooky, just dies there and doesn't even get reported on. And the weird thing is the media reported on the captured people and they reported on the guy that went missing and now determined to be KIA. 
but they didn't talk about this guy. And I'm just wondering how many other Americans have gone missing in Ukraine. And I mean, his obituary is out there. It's not like this is a secret. So I just don't understand why this guy is not being reported on and why how many others there are. And like uh, your it relates to your other question about who are these private contractors that are sending these guys over there, even though Biden's out there saying, oh, don't do it, don't do it. And then looking the other way. And it just makes me wonder how many Americans are over there and how many of these people are actually career construction workers, you know? Yeah. Um, well, the, the, the case of the American who was killed in action, this guy Willie Hansel in April, is still bizarre. Because on the one hand, when it was first reported by CNN, they quoted his mother saying that he was recruited from his job as a prison guard in Tennessee by a private military contracting company to go to Ukraine and fight. And CNN didn't think to like look into what that, who that, what, what that company was or name the company or do any additional follow-up. And then I saw... Is there anybody with journalistic... Uh, <laughs> well, um, and then, then the Washington Post did, a, did an article maybe a month later, six weeks later, where Willie Cancel was referenced again... But people in his unit said that he was not actually a somebody who had been recruited by a military contracting company. It was just a pure volunteer. So a guy who's 22, has a baby, okay. and was yeah. a prison guard, all of a sudden was just moved to such passion by a zeal to fight for Ukraine that he went on a vo pure volunteer basis to go fight and die. I mean, I don't know. I think maybe his mother should be followed up on – uh, to see if maybe they can get more details as to how, like what was the actual circumstances of this 22-year-old heading over to to uh, Ukraine. And, really? Uh, how, how has no one done this? I mean, there's so many outlets in the United States that have resources. There's not, a, there's not a whole lot. I mean, I, when I went to Poland in March, I was viciously attacked on a variety of different grounds. And one of them was that Um, it, it, it was like journalistically invalid to report just on the like on the proxy war effort that was being run out of Poland to send personnel and material into into Ukraine. Like that that itself was a journalistically invalid thing to report on because um, I don't know they, they were claiming that you know it's not a story or even some people were saying that it would jeopardize national security. You know Malcolm Nance, the, like the free call for. <laughs> the Polish military police to come and track me down and throw me into the ground and arrest me and charge me with espionage. Um, so I don't know what the actual grievance is there. It's just there's a huge – it seems like there was a huge pushback to the mere fact of me even wanting to look into the subject. So you know, whatever was motivating that seems to have <laughs> some effects on the rest of the media because otherwise you'd think that would be like a huge – I mean – so what were the circumstances of this 22-year-old who was killed in combat in Ukraine in April? Right. I mean, it's, it's not like a, that crazy a of a question, question to pose, and yet there's been hardly any follow-up on it. I mean, I guess maybe I should really do more on it, although I'm one guy. And, I mean, yeah, it, yeah, it would be nice solutions. if, like, the New York Times, which has, like, huge amounts of resources, would maybe, like, devote a fraction of them to looking into that, but they don't seem interested. Again, I know I suggested this before, but this is where we could put Taylor Lorenz to work. <laughs> Ukraine, get her into Izium. You know, I, I don't know. The, the whole thing is weird to me, and it's it almost reminiscent of Epstein. The way it's like there's a line drawn, 
and it's like a bunch of uh, vultures in the wild that aren't aren't eating a dead carcass for some reason. You know what I mean? It's like they yeah. usually eat the dead carcass, but what's going on here? They're not because this is what they do. They just find these stories and they report on them and dr- dramatize them. The reporting is just like, oh, they shot a big cannon. Look at how powerful it is. It doesn't go. <laughs> they're not talking about Americans dying over there, and it, it's a very obvious question you would have and it's the same thing as obvious as why wouldn't you look into epstein's like finances and, and his head fund hedge fund trading there's these things that just are seemingly off off limits and it's like a cultural thing i guess i, I don't even know yeah well th- thanks for bringing up this um obituary to me uh so i'll, no I'll, see, if I, I'll see if i can look into it well, all right thanks time. andrew um eric we're skipping over you and philip you're up Uh, Philip, you got to start over because it's hard, a little hard to hear you. Okay, can you hear me now? Yeah. Okay, yeah. I was asked, I was just theorizing about the whole, like a large percentage of, I guess, when they polled, why educated women made up a large percentage of um, people who um, were against. Well, who wanted to go to war against Russia or who supported the Ukrainian war against Russia. My biggest guess would be uh, Putin's just a very bad guy in the kind of a way I guess they would think. I remember like 10 years ago, he used to be like a sign of Western masculinity. And I know that that could be very off-putting for, I guess that would be a, a more feminist, off, very off-putting for a more feminist class, especially since a lot of guys had said like, oh, go to Russia to go find women to, you know, find a wife and stuff like that. Like, maybe it's a more competition thing on their behalf. <laughs> Mail-order brides, yeah. Uh, you know, I think um, maybe, I, I, I do think, I, you know, per- preceding the war in Ukraine, and even preceding Trump coming to office and it being alleged that he had been installed there by Putin, there was a narrative that had been percolating about how Russia was this retrograde force with regard to like LGBT rights, and it is true that you know Putin uh, instituted certain legislation that made it a crime to. I think the idea was that um, basically they limited the amount of LGBT related. They would call it indoctrination or uh, propaganda that could be taught to school children in Russia. Um, and so that accelerated this whole perception of Russia as a bulwark of global reactionary sentiment. Um, I, I guess I, I'm not sure that a whole lot of white women are really even aware that Russia and uh, – I mean it's not even Russia. I mean I think <laughs> – I'm not from. I'm not personally familiar, for the record, with the whole process of mail order bride acquisition. But I think you know you could all. The, the, weren't those also drawn from other parts of like Eastern Europe and some former Soviet countries? I mean, I guess I just kind I of doubt. I mean, it's it's it's, it's an interesting Europe. theory. I just kind of doubt that there are a whole lot of women who are actively conscious enough of. You know, men seeking easy female sexual companionship from Russia—that they would factor that into their ge- geopolitical views. 
I could be wrong. I'm though. just going more because um, I used to follow like um, the quote unquote menosphere and the red pill community. Yeah, yeah. And I just remember like how they um, they were always like Russia's like the most masculine country, the most feminist women. Um, Putin is the strongest, most masculine leader. And I'm like, you know, I'm thinking like a white woman feminist is listening to stuff like that. They're rolling their eyes. They're thinking like this is disgusting <laughs> yeah. and things of that nature. That these guys are just mostly misogynistic. I can see like we gotta stop a misogynist like Putin or an anti-LGBT, which kind of befuddled me when um, Ukraine became all of a sudden this pro-Western LGBT symbol. That that confused me as well. I didn't even know they were that they were progressive in that nature until very recently. Or it just seemed like that's what the United States propaganda was trying to put up. Yeah. Um, uh, Mark Ames, who, uh, who co-wrote this book with Matt Hybe in the nineties that ended up causing them a lot of grief because the portions that seemingly were written by Ames, uh, have to do with the Russian women and his, their, his exploits with Russian women in the nineties, you know, when the country was in free fall and he actually did, you know, the guy is a leftist of a certain stripe, but he, he would, he had similar accounts of the nature of Russian uh, femininity, uh, meaning that they are the most you know beautiful women on earth, and uh, you know, quote unquote, easiest something to that effect. Like, sort of crude language, I guess, but maybe you saw that reflected later on in the uh, the whole manosphere take on it. I guess I just have doubts that that would be much of a factor in opinions about the war in Ukraine because. You would have to be somewhat plugged into the quote manosphere to even know that that was being discussed, and most college-educated white women probably are not overly familiar with what goes on in the online manosphere. I would I would agree with that. I'm just trying to figure out because yeah, I'm I'm kind of confused that um, white college-educated. I would figure like those would be people who would be most opposed to going to war with anybody. Well, yeah, and that's why it's a that's why it's a bizarre dynamic to try to probe because in the past. That would have been the case, I think. Um, and yet something has like fundamentally shifted in the past couple of years that makes this particular demographic the most hawkish. Um, and uh, yeah, it just seems like a, a, a like a they've done a 180. And you know, it seems like something that's worth further <laughs> discussion and investigation, but I wouldn't wouldn't look to the mainstream media to have much of a concept of this being something that might be worthy of further investigation. Anyway, thanks, Philip. And now let's go finally to yeah, Rena. Rena, you're up. Hey, Michael. Hey. Uh, okay, white woman, college. <laughs> uh, not, not a Russia hater but that might have something to do with having studied some Russian history and having minored in the Russian language. Uh, so, yeah. Oh, really? Uh, How fluent yeah. are you now in Russian? Uh, not. Uh, okay. fluent, fluent enough that I uh, found a Cyrillic keyboard and redid my Twitter handle to to match my my Russian name from Russian language classes because I was so sick of seeing Ukrainian flags and 
all the rest of that bullshit on Twitter. So that was that was my little gesture of solidarity with the Russian people. But uh, yeah, that honestly, this the the whole Russophobia thing is just I don't know. It's 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 really 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 hard for me to to fi- to figure it all out. You know that. Russians have really been um, otherized, for lack of a better word, and I mean it's it's really hard to figure. How do you how do you lionize uh, Ukrainians and you know the people just across the border? The the Russians are 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 otherized, you know, and they're uh, obviously very closely related. Who knows? Yeah, no, no. historically, yada yada yada. It's just, it's it's really bizarre to me. Yeah, you know, it's bizarre on so many levels. One of which is that there was really nothing set in stone that it had to go in this direction. I mean, it's because of a whole confluence of very weird factors that we have gotten to this point of Russia Russophobia being like a primary currency of American political discourse. Um, you know, I was reading about the um, the Kosovo War, you know, the NATO-Kosovo uh, intervention in 1999 last night, and uh, Boris Yeltsin, who at that point was on the verge of being impeached in Russia and was, you know, widely despised as just a part of the U.S. who had presided over the collapse of the country, um, even he fervently denounced the NATO intervention in Yugoslavia in 1999 as uh, an infringement by extension on Russian sovereignty. But, of course, there was nothing he could do at that point because Russia was basically in shambles and was not militarily equipped to respond in any way. Um, and, but fast forward to... 9-11 and Russia and the U.S. were probably more united than they had ever been since maybe ever I mean since the Russian Revolution or something um, George W. Bush would tout that the first phone call he received on 9-11 from any foreign leader was from Putin and mm. um I think they spoke – I read that they spoke twice within the span of t- two or three days after 9-11. Russia pledged full support. Um, there could have been uh, – there was at least for a time some apparent convergence of geopolitical goals because Russia had its own stated problem with you know, Islamic extremism uh, related to Chechnya or what, what have you. And then you know, Russia basically fell off the map fell off the map as a priority for the U.S. Um, and it wasn't until later when, you know, NATO expansion just kept ramping up as a matter of just institutional momentum. And then you had the, the whole Ukraine crisis in 2014 that things went in a radically different direction. But I guess the, my point is none of that was like foreordained necessarily. Um, I think if you teleported back to 10... 15, 20 years ago, a lot of people would be shocked that Russia would somehow reemerge as the number one issue that the foreign policy establishment is preoccupied with. 
Yeah. Um, I don't. Yeah. I don't know if. I don't know if this is. I'm. I'm pretty thoroughly ashamed of myself that I didn't pay better, pay hardly any attention, to the whole uh, NATO destruction of uh, Yugoslavia and all, all of that stuff that went on. I mean, I mean, it's not that I wasn't aware of it, but I. I think I very stupidly bought into the oh we're bombing we're bombing to protect people bullshit, and uh, the whole the whole scope of that and the the motivations and NATO is a defensive alliance and all of that I mean that, that's that's all really come to the forefront now with this whole Ukraine thing yeah so. Everybody has to pay attention to it now, and I think the seeds were really sown back then, probably with that whole thing with the Balkans. I I do know I I do have a friend though who wants to take Putin out. She thinks that would solve the problem. Yeah. So you know, it's it's some, funny some actually. Of us, um... Some of us women are pretty violent, I guess. <laughs> I did try and explain to her that if they take you know if somebody if somebody takes him out, big air quotes that there's just going to be somebody else to step up and uh, continue the war with Ukraine. But I'm not sure I really got my point across. Well, the, the, the leaders of Finland and Sweden who are now bringing their respective countries into NATO membership are both young women who have been you know, touted as the future of Europe. The, um, oh, the, prime, right. minister, the oh. prime minister of uh, Estonia is, uh, you know, who's one of the most hawkish, um, you know, which is, Par for the course in the Baltic states, but nevertheless, I mean, she's she's a young younger woman, um, so you know it doesn't at least in terms of reticence to engage in provocative military behavior, it doesn't seem like it's being borne out that women are somehow naturally less inclined toward that. Um, no, it sure doesn't. And when you think of any when you think of any women who've led countries uh, in the past. Um, I don't know, Golda Meir, Indira Gandhi, any of them, uh, certainly Maggie Thatcher, uh, Hillary, for God's sake. Uh, yeah, not younger women, but definitely warmongers, pretty much. So. Yeah, speaking of Thatcher, we just passed the uh, the 40th anniversary of the Falklands War, <laughs> which people probably aren't that familiar with, but it was sort of a bizarre conflict that, yeah, Margaret Thatcher launched against uh, Argentina. <laughs> Um, I at the, that one. In defiance of Reagan. So he, she was too hawkish for Reagan at that time. Um, God. God. Yeah. I, I, women, I, I, you know, I, I wish I thought that women were going to save us, but I, apparently apparently not. The old ones were bad, and the, the young ones coming up aren't any better. So that's yeah, sad. You know, it's, it's, it is worth – I mean, I, I – I am younger than you, so like I wasn't an adult when the Kosovo intervention was happening. Although I do have a some a bizarrely vivid memory of watching it on TV, uh, meaning watching the onset of the NATO-led bombing on, on TV. It's like the first memory I, I have of you know watching some sort of military conflict unfold in that way. Uh, but it is interesting to go back and look at some of the history because. Um, you know, there was just decreed without really much of fact finding, and I don't necessarily dispute the findings on this. But it was you know, the Serbs under Milosevic were accused of all kinds of atrocities, um, and that paved the way for Clinton, you know, uh, launching this intervention. And now, you know, twenty plus years later, uh, P 
people who were associated with the what was called the Kosovo Liberation Army, which basically the U.S. intervened on behalf of to enable them to basically declare independence from from Serbia. Um, they're basically this uh, paramilitary factional militia. Um, and they were accused of basically funding their operations through drug trafficking and all this. But 20 plus years later, in 2020, the prime minister of Kosovo, which is not widely uh, recognized universally even as a country, although the U.S. recognizes it and as, the, as is most of Europe, Russia strenuously does not. But the prime minister of uh, Kosovo had to resign in 2020 because he was indicted by The Hague for war crimes stemming from his activities with this Kosovo Liberation Army back in 1999 that the U.S. intervened to empower. Wow. I hadn't heard um, that. That's very interesting. Yeah. Well, most people hadn't uh, because, you know, these things get memory hold. They anyway, Rena, thank you for your input as always. Uh, thanks for everybody for tuning in. And uh, we'll reconvene shortly. All right. Have a good night.